If you would please turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 12, Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the fire. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am, I live forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you, which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you have, which you saw in your right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, uh, the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to meet together and study your word. Lord, we we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his work in our lives that gives us a desire to study this word, who who gives us an understanding of this word, who helps us to understand this word. I, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds today that to give us understanding, to, to look beyond just the, the mere words and get the concepts, get the, the breadth and the depth, the profundity of Scripture and this vision that John has laid out for us. Lord, we thank you for the way the Word of God then takes hold of our life. It changes the way we think. It changes our attitude. It changes our outlook on life. It changes what we do on a daily basis. It changes what we say sometimes. It changes our actions. It it brings us to holiness. It brings us into conformity to you. So your word is precious to us, Father. And we are thankful to be able to meet together and read and study your word today. I pray that you would be honored with our time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we, we started the, this passage, starting verse 9, and we saw just the first three verses that uh, John sets a tone for 
this vision. He gives us the setting for this vision of Christ. Uh, he is on the island of Patmos. He was in the Spirit on the, the Lord's day. He was there because of persecution. And he was caught up in the Spirit. And the Spirit is then giving him this vision. And, and he hears this voice behind him. And, and then he turns. And that's where we pick it up now. And he gives us this this vision of Christ. And, and even in the tone that he said, it was a sober tone for this passage. Invoking in us fear, what's going to happen, what's, what's going on, uh, uncertainty. And it invokes within us a sense of respect as well. And it sets a good tone, really not just for this passage, but for the whole book. But it's a strange description, isn't it? We read through this and we think, wow, this is, this is un- incredible. This is hard to, hard to understand. But it's, it's splendorous. It's, it just picks Christ in His glory. John has to use very descriptive terms because he's trying to depict Christ in, in His deity, in His splendor, in His glory. And sometimes that's hard for us to even imagine. It's hard for us to, to see it. And I say, and I've said it before a couple, a few weeks ago, the church needs an accurate understanding of Christ. We need to, we need to have a fresh view of Christ and what we currently have, I believe. We have, uh, we have these little snapshots of, of Christ in our minds so often when we go to worship and when we, uh, and when we present to the world. But these little snapshots of Christ being a great teacher. So we see Him on the hillside teaching the masses. Or we see Him as a forgiver as He is forgiving this, um, this woman caught in adultery. Or we'll, we might see Him in His benevolence feeding 5,000. And we see these little snapshots. We just get little glimpses of Christ. Or we may see Him washing the disciples' feet in His humility. Or we may see him as a, as a rebel, making a, a whip and, and scourging and cleansing the temple. Or we may see him as loving, holding the children, saying, let the little children come unto me. And these little snapshots, they're good, but we need to see the whole picture. And we see Christ in His humanity, but we need to see Christ in His, in His deity. We need this understanding of Christ. This is, this needs to be the, the last image of the church. This is the last book that was written in the Old Test, in the New Testament. This needs to be the vision that we have of Christ. And so often it's not. It's Christ more in His humanity, which is not bad, but it's limited. It's sometimes imbalanced in our thinking, in the way we approach Scripture, in the way we communicate Christ to this world. And the world tends to have an imbalanced view of Christ. They just simply stop right there. Okay, Christ was a good teacher. Or they, you know, maybe he was a pretty entertaining teacher. He got the masses. He, maybe he was a revolutionary. Maybe he was kind of rebellious and, and they see him that way. Or maybe they see him just as loving man, humble, good man. And that's kind of where it stops. But this is the vision that is now. This is the vision that is relative to the church. So often we bring down, we bring Christ down to our level. Now he was, he was man. So we need to see 
Him in His deity as well. When we bring Him down to our level, He just becomes one of our heroes among many heroes. Kind of a reflection of our own selves. But this vision is not like that. I mean, this doesn't describe me. This doesn't look like me at all. This is Christ in His glory, in His divinity. That He is God. He was not just man. We cannot just depict Him as a good man. We have to depict Him as He really is, as God. Now, He is both. But we need to get it balanced. Especially when we're communicating it to the world. The world can reject a good man. The world can reject a, a humble man and a loving man. The world can just say, you know what, that's great. We've got enough loving men. They need to see Christ as He is now. Because the world will stand before Him soon and they will stand before Him in judgment. And this is the Christ they're going to see. This is the reality. And they will bow the knee to Him. And it starts here at the church. We have to have the accurate view of Christ. We need to have this understanding. Now... Sometimes you you gotta, you gotta think, you, you look at all of the versions of Jesus out there, from the liberal churches to the, the very conservative churches, uh, that, uh, are, are off the charts, and, and you think, will the real Jesus please stand up? What does he really look like? John gives us that description for us. This is the, this is the image that needs to sink deep down in our minds. Now, in this passage, John gives us two elements. He gives us the description of Christ, and then he also gives us his reaction, which is interesting, and I think that we can learn much from from both of these things. Now, just to let you know, this is kind of a lengthy passage, and I want you to know, I probably will not get through all of the points that I have, all right? Just Just to let you know, this will probably carry on to next week, but we'll see how far we can get today. So, let's get right into it. John's description of Christ. Christ as He is now. Now, that's an old picture that I found. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. It depicts all of the scene that John describes for us here. Well, let's just, let's, let's analyze this a little bit. Verse 12, he says, Then I turn. So, his attention was one way, and this voice comes out from behind him, and it sounds like a trumpet. It's loud. It's clear. And he turns to face the voice. He says, I turn to see the voice. You don't see voices, but uh, you, you understand. You get the point. He's turning to see, and as he's turning to see, what he sees is, well, the first thing that catches his mind is, Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, or these these lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. But the first thing he catches his attention is is these these, these, uh, lampstands. Now, first thing I want you to see, and we can go on to the the, the first point there, is note where Christ is. Note where where he was. John wants to to note, and wants us to note that. Um, And he's in the midst of his church. He's right in the midst of his church. So John hears the noise. He turns around. He sees the the golden lampstand. There's there's seven of them. And they're they're around him. And you say, well, that's what does that mean? That doesn't really mean anything. That's not really significant. It is significant. It is significant. It's not just happenstance. He gives us uh, an understanding of what those 
lampstands mean, if you look all the way down at the bottom of the chapter in verse 20, the last thing that I read, the seven golden lampstands, or the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. Now, he wants us to understand that. And Christ is in the midst of his church, of his churches, of his church. Now, this depicts Christ and his, his preoccupation. Right now, he is preoccupied with his body. He is the head of the church. And that's Christ's focus right now is his body, is his church. And he's in the midst of the church. There's significance to that. Like I said, he is the head of the church. He is the, the church is his bridegroom. His focus is upon her. He is using her in this world. He is using his body in this world. And he purchased the church with his own blood, didn't he? He is the leader of the church. He is the, the source of life for the church. He breathes into the church life. He is the one building His church. He brings people into His church. He is involved in His church. He is moving among the churches. And we'll see that even more particularly in these seven churches in chapters 2 and chapter 3. He wants us to understand that even more. So He gives us more detail. And He currently is sustaining the church. And that's the image here. He is currently sustaining the church in his role. He is, uh, he has attached himself to the church as the body is attached to the head. Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, if two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm going to be right there in the midst. And that's wonderful. It is good for us to see and understand that Christ is focused upon the church. He uses the church and He is going to work in the world through His church. Through His church. People come to me and often, I mean, you, you hear this more and more today, but people will say to me, well, I don't believe in organized religion. I, I say, you know what, Christ is that's that's where Christ is. Christ is in His church. He's in His church. And that filters down to local church, not just the body of Christ. The body of Christ is seen in the local, in the local churches. And Christians, we have to be very careful to not detach ourselves from the local church. That is unheard of, really, in Scripture. And people claim... That they don't believe in organized religion, but they claim to be a Christian. You think, how in the world can you be a Christian and not care for God's people? Not be attached to the body of Christ. Not be attached to the head of Christ. It's just unheard of in Scripture. Now we as individuals, we cannot just go out and do whatever we want to do. If we're Christians, we are attached to the church. We are attached to God really through the church. Now, you can take that into an unwholesome way, in an, uh, uh, a heretical, heretical way, as the Catholic Church has done. But there's a connection. If we are believers, we are to be functioning, we are to be involved in the church. In fact, we, we kind of lose our identity, we kind of lose our individuality in, in our corporateness in our function, in the whole of the body of Christ. That's the vision of the church. When you look at the Old Testament, or in the New Testament church, people kind of lose themselves. They lose themselves in the serving of God in His church. Now what's interesting too is, Satan has his 
group, doesn't he? Right now, he is the, the head over the world. The, the world is his hands. The world is his feet. He is the, the leader. He is the God of this age, Paul tells us. So it really comes down to two leaders. You have Christ and you have Satan. And you have to, you have to ask yourself, which one am I attached to? Which one am I a part of? Christ is involved in his church. And if we want to be about what Christ is involved in, it will be his church. We have to be very careful about that. I just by way of application, you, you, you can't be a part of the church and not be here. You have to be here. You can't be a part of the church and not love God's people and be involved in their life. That's just unheard of. It's unheard of. We are attached to the head, the body of Christ. We're part of His body. Do you function that way? Is that part of your life? Or is it just a religion? Well, you go to this building on Sunday and, and you, you just, you know, this is what you do. Or are you attached to the body of Christ? Let's, let's move on. John paints this picture then of Christ in the midst of His church. In the midst of His church. And that's His priority. That's where He is. Number two, look at this. Note where, note what Christ is wearing. And this is significant as well. He says in middle verse 13, he says, I saw like the, the Son of Man, and that would be Christ, and he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. Now that would have been, that would have been royalty. That would have been very expensive clothing, reaching all the way to the feet. And, and that's in a position of, of a king of riches, all the way to the feet, and girded across the chest with a golden sash. Now, what he's depicting here is the Old Testament priest. And Christ is performing. I mean, he is a prophet and a king, but he is also a priest. He is functioning as a priest in, in our day. He has offered up the sacrifice, which is himself, to God for the church, for his people. And he is interceding for them now. He is currently in the position playing the role of a priest. Now, a priest, if you look at, over in Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> we don't quite see that today. We don't quite understand that. We don't have priests running around today, or at least this, this kind of priest. But in Romans chapter 8, in verse 34, well, start in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who, who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, that's a priestly role. A priest is someone who is a go-between. Christ is the go-between between God in His deity, in His greatness, in all of His glory, and man. Man in His sinfulness, in His debauchery, in His rebellion against God. You have Jesus right there in the middle. Perfect God, perfect man, 100% of both. Jesus is the perfect uh, the perfect. Uh, priest, high priest, and that's depicted in in uh, Hebrews. 
And as the perfect high priest, he is there before Christ. When I commit a sin or when you commit a sin, he says to God, he he is right there in the presence of God and, and he will present that to God and he will say, that's under the blood. That's under the blood. That's under my blood. He is one of ours. When Satan has an accusation against us to God, Jesus is there saying, interceding for us, and he's saying, no, that's one of my sons. That's one of the family. So he intercedes. And he's the perfect man, so he can sympathize with us, the the author of Hebrews says. He's the perfect man. He understands temptations like we would, like we do. He understands our weakness. He understands and He can comfort just at the right moment. He can give hope at just the right time. He understands. That's a wonderful thing. The deities of the the Roman world, they didn't have that. There was no attachment to us. There was no, no interest in mankind. But Jesus is the perfect God man. He's the perfect priest. Now, we don't quite understand, like I said, we don't quite understand this role or even our need for a, for a priest. In our arrogant day, in, in our day of equality, we just think we can rush right into the presence of God. That is foolish. That is foolish. We, um, you, you would kind of get this idea, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rush, I'm gonna tell him what I think. Like we can tell God anything. I'm going to give Him a piece of my mind. That is arrogance. But folks, that's the way people think today. That's the way they think. It's arrogance. We need a high priest. Uh, We in our sinfulness cannot even stand in the presence. And so we, an intercessor is essential. Um, We cannot be children of God. We cannot hold any kind of hope of eternity. We can have no joy. We cannot have one second of joy of heaven apart from Christ. We can't. Lately, you've been seeing, you know, these men jumping over the fence, trying to get into the the White House. Um, Some of them are trying to get in, even with the president not even being there. But like they could just walk right in. Oh, how you doing? We know that. They can't just walk right up to the, to the President of the United States. He is the President. He is guarded. Um, some of the uh, Secret Service, I guess the, uh, the FBI, uh, a couple years ago, you remember the story, they, they accidentally let the, this guy on the same elevator as the President. It's just unheard of. The, people lost their job as a result of that. We don't do that on a human level. Do we really think that we could just go right in, usher ourselves right into the presence of God and declare ourselves like we are are something? We have nothing to offer God. There is absolutely no reason for Him to pay one iota of attention to us at all. Only through Christ. Only through a high priest. Only through Christ is the only way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Listen, that's the message that the world needs today. 
They need to see God in His glory, that He is not just approachable. He is, he is someone that we, uh, we cannot even come into His presence because we are so sinful. We need Christ. The world doesn't see a need for Christ anymore, do they? They don't see any need for this. We have kind of, in our arrogance, have kind of elevated ourselves. We, we think pretty highly of ourselves. And I'm afraid that that kind of attitude really has even crept into the church. High priest? Now Christ is the high priest? Well, we don't need that. No. No. God and I are buddies. Wait a second. We have to be very, very careful. We are still in our sinful bodies. We are still in our sinful minds. And we dare not. We dare. We, we can do nothing apart from Christ. We cannot go into the throne of God apart from Christ. Now, we can go in boldly. There's a balance to be had. But I tell you what, the balance is the pendulum has swung the wrong way, in my opinion. Let's look at number three just quickly and we'll pull this together. So, so we've seen Christ's role then at this time. We see where Christ is. His focus is upon the church. We see that uh, he has his uh, high priestly uh, garments on. And he is functioning as a priest. And then number three, let's look at his appearance. Here's his appearance in verse 14. 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool. What is that talking about? Well, we don't appreciate age too much anymore. But but white, this white uh, gives the... uh, Gives, brings the attention of age. He's, now, Christ, he died at, what, age 33? He probably wasn't gray-headed. John remembers Christ when he was walking on earth, and all of a sudden now he is the aged. He's talking about his, his eternal pre-existence. Christ eternally existed. He has age. And he is unchanged. And it talks about his wisdom, doesn't it? That he is all wise, unchanging. He has, he has age. His, his head and his hair were white, like wool. And he wants you to get it, like, like snow. I mean, just that brilliant white, brilliant white. Those people in biblical times, or really in many other times, uh, they were sought out. The aged people uh, are the wise ones. Those are the ones that you want to to uh, get counsel from. He's talking about his wisdom. In fact, if you want to think about this, all of these are depictions of God. In the Old Testament, we see it in Daniel. We'll look at some of those maybe in a little bit. His eyes. Look at his eyes in verse 14. And his eyes, the end of verse 14, and his eyes were like flames of fire. Now that's intimidating, right? Consuming fire, fire burns, fire consumes. It's, it has this idea of this penetrating, piercing gaze that he would have. Penetrating with his vision. And it also gets the idea of this quick intelligence. He knows. Now I think my mom had this. I'm just telling you. Because sometimes my mom would, uh, I would come into the room, and I don't know, you know, as kids, the 
probably acting a little suspicious or, or whatever. And you look at your mom, you try not to look at And she just has this penetrating gaze. And she knows. She just knows. I don't know how she knows. But that's the idea here. This penetrating gaze. And it points out, it points out uh, the judgment with his eyes. He can winnow out people quickly, can't he? He knows. And we're all guilty before him. And just one quick gaze, and we know that he knows. And our hearts are already convicted. And it talks about his, his righteous anger, righteous wrath. He is, he, he is a, an intelligent being and, and he penetrates. There's, there's both understanding there and there's wrath there. There's a flame there. It's a consuming thing. Let's go on. Look at his feet. His feet were like bronzed, burnished bronze. Now you, you've put something into a fire and you've let it get hot. Or roasting marshmallows sometimes will leave the, the ends of it in the fire and you pull it out and man, it just is glowing. That's the picture. That's, that's the look that he has here. And it's, fire has a purifying effect. And when it's, when it's glowing like that, all of the imperfections are burned off. And what you see is that, that metal, that hard metal. And he's talking about here the, the purity, the high quality. There's nothing impure. There's nothing compromising with, with Christ. His feet, his feet were like fire. Or this bronze that's, that's glowing. That's glowing. And then one more description here. And his voice was like the waters of, uh, the sound of many waters. And we've just been having floods. We went down to, um, uh, Basil and Sue Campbell's um, uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. And they just have a little creek coming by their house. and But it, it just keeps coming and breaking the, the banks and coming over into their house. And, and when it floods, though, when we were there, you'd have to come away from the creek just to have a conversation. Because the waters were just so loud. So loud. I understand we were away, but I understand it rained. Uh, the couple nights ago, and uh, and I, I can imagine when the rain's coming down, it's, it's hard to even talk. It's hard to even hear yourself think. Have you ever been around Niagara Falls, and and you get close to that thing, you can't have a conversation. It's just it's the sound of many waters, just loud, all consuming. You can't even hear yourself think, and that's that's the idea here. He's an all-encompassing. His voice is loud and all-consuming. This is talking about authority. Authority here. You say, man, that's, that's a pretty incredible description. It's a description of divine character. Every bit of this is divine character. And if we took the time, we can go back to the Old Testament and the book of Daniel, and you'd see every one of these, and they're a depiction of God Himself. God has these same characteristics, same, described in the same way. So John is just, just saying, look at his deity. He is not just man. He is God. He is God. He is not like us. He is not like us. He is, he is, he, he may have the, an image of, of the man, but behind that image is, is glory and splendor that is beyond comprehension. And he has divine characteristics, divine character. 
And it is unique. He has authority. And it's intimidating, isn't it? Now, can you imagine? You hear something and you turn around and this voice is coming at you and this consuming loud, these words were, were coming at you. You see these images. And you see what's going on. Let me tell you, you would be intimidated. You would be intimidated. You would, you would fall to your knees just like John does. And we'll probably talk about that next week because I don't think we're going to get to it. It would be intimidating. The picture here is one of authority. It's an authoritative position. It's an authoritative figure, we might say. Someone that has control of the situation. <laughs> Someone that has a demand over our life. We might say it as a father figure. There's, there's, some, there's a threat there. There's some intimidation there. Should I approach? Should, what should I do? There's a there's some respect that's naturally built in. And we don't rush to him. Now, like I said, John didn't, his response wasn't to run up and, and hug this image of Christ. Remember, John and Jesus were good friends. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were together for three and a half years. But he was he was standoffish. He sees this and he sees the intimidation and he's intimidated by it. And so he holds back. He holds back. Now, what's being described here is, is respect. And it's a rightful a respect that's rightfully so, rightly deserved. I mean, you would have to be very careful about approaching uh, this kind of individual. Now, I want you to see this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us this, this balance. And folks, that's what we're looking for, is a balance. We, we've swung the pendulum over to this God who is lovable teddy bear. But listen, I think that pendulum needs to swing back the other way, and we need to have a respect for God and for Christ. Look at... Hebrews chapter 12, and you probably know this passage. The author of Hebrews is, is talking about our discipline, when God disciplines us. Look at verse, verse 7. We'll start there. It is for discipline that we, in, that we endure. God deals with us as sons, as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if we are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, so all of us are being disciplined to some degree or another, then you are illegitimate child and not a son. If God is not disciplining you, if there is no respect there, if, if He is not putting that pressure on you to form a holiness within you, then you can come to the conclusion that you are not really a son that's, that's pretty sobering. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Now listen, there's an intimidation to God Himself. He is to be feared. He is to be respected. Now He is also a father, so there's that balance as well. But I think we need to, to understand this as someone who is an authority and who will discipline us. Now we can relate to that. 
We can understand a father figure. I, I will, um, I will come up and I will hug him and, and we will be, uh, good friends. We will have close conversations. But at the same time, he reserves that right to, uh, to spank us, to discipline us. That's a good balance right there, isn't it? It's a good balance. And he goes on to say, Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and of life? Listen, if we respect our earthly fathers because they are intimidating, because they have this respectful aura about them, because they reserve this right to to correct us and to discipline us, then we certainly should have this same respect or even greater respect for our Heavenly Father. Do you get that? Do you see what he's trying to say? For they disciplined us... For a short time, I mean, it's just really, in a matter of uh, years, just, just really a short time compared to your whole life, as seems best to them. Look, they just did it. They were trying to conform you to just keep you out of prison. God, He has a greater plan. Seems best to them. He says, but He disciplined us, God disciplines us for our good. He has our good in mind. Not just to conform us to social norms so that we may share His holiness. That's the point. That's what, that's what God is disciplining us for. That's what He is structuring our lives. That's why He brings pressure into our lives. He brings uh, trials into our lives to push us toward holiness, to conform to His image. And He will use force, folks. He is a God to be feared. He has that right. He is that father figure over us in all discipline. And he goes on to say, verse 11, I love this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be a joyous thing. He said, we don't go through, boy, I'm being, I'm being disciplined by the Lord. Hey, boy, these things are great. No, this is hard. This is hard. It says, but sorrowful. This is not a joyful thing, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained, disciplined by God, afterwards it yields its peaceful fruit of righteousness. We can know when God disciplines us, He is disciplining us. He is bringing that structure into our lives for the point of holiness. So we, we need to respect that. We need to recognize that. We need to acknowledge that. We do not face trials and say, oh, there he goes again. He's just picking on me. He's just a mean God. No, he has our good in mind. The thing is, is we better think about, do we respect this God? Do we really respect him? Now, let me tell you, I've talked with people who, you know, go through adversities and they will shake their fist at God. And I think, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Have you no respect for God? He has that right over your life. And He does it for your good. There's a respect there. There's a respect that that needs to be there. It's a wholesome respect. It's a healthy respect. How How do we apply this to our lives? How do we apply this? We, John sees this vision of Christ. It's not the Christ on the earth that, that walked around and did miracles. No, this, this, is, this is a guy I'd never seen before. 
And there's an intimidation factor there. And there's a respect there. And John, John holds back. John is, is scared. We'll look at that next week. But he should be scared. This is a God who someday we will stand before Him. This is Christ. We will stand before Him in, in judgment. Listen, folks. We'll, we'll wrap it up here. Every word, every word that we say, God hears. Everything that we do, God sees. Every action, every attitude, every thought in your mind, God knows. This this has to force us to discipline our minds to make sure we don't have impure thoughts. It, It has to discipline our eyes to make sure we don't look at things that we shouldn't. Because God knows. He is a consuming fire. He knows these things. He is a God to be respected. This is Christ who is the head of the church, but it is also God. Folks, that has to sink deep into our thinking and into our minds. I think the church today is just so self-centered. We don't really quite understand who we're dealing with here. I mean, he's a fun God. He is a good God. He is benevolent. He has been gracious. But listen, He is a God to be respected. And I tell you what, you get the sense someday judgment is going to start. And when it starts, it will start with the house of God. We'll look at that a little bit next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is sobering things for us. To think through. In fact, I'm not sure that, that my words can, can plumb its depths. We, we can't really understand it or grasp it. But I, we understand this is a sobering thing. We have to understand that this is intimidating. This is not just our own little fun world or fun religion that we're playing here. This is serious stuff. Lord, help us to find that balance. We, we have a whole Christian, it seems like a Christian nation that, that doesn't know this. That doesn't have this same image of God. Lord, help it to sink deep into our own hearts and minds. Help us to be aware every time we pray, every, every time we go out, everything we look at. Help us to be aware of your presence. And that presence is not just a warm teddy bear, but he is a God to be dealt with, a God who knows our thoughts, a God who sees every action that we do. Lord, help that alone to sober us up, to, like Paul, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.